are continuing our study in the book of Daniel. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open that or flip through your phone and find the book of Daniel. We'll be in chapter 3 this morning. And as you find your way there, let me just kind of remind you where we have been so far. Daniel uh, begins by focusing on a Jewish teenage boy and his friends. And these boys were taken from their homeland, Israel, and carried off into exile into a foreign land called Babylon. While in Babylon, the king, his king was King Nebuchadnezzar, tried to indoctrinate them into his pagan culture. But Daniel and his friends uh, remained faithful to the one true God. And last week, what we saw was Daniel interpreted the king's dream. And as a result of that, um, himself and his friends became rulers uh, in the land. And then today, in chapter 3, what we'll see is Daniel's friends find themselves in another situation uh, with the king. So before we dive in and to help us just kind of get our minds wrapped around where we are going. Does anybody have a favorite team that you follow? And I'm talking like a team that your heart starts racing when the team gets close, when the game gets close and your palms start sweating. Anybody have that team? I think most of us kind of do, right? Let me find where my people are. M-I-Z. Very good. You guys called yourself out. I'm sorry to make you do that, but um, no. So let me tell you a little bit of story about myself and, and a time when I realized something about idols in my life. So it was the last year that uh, Missouri, the University of Missouri, was in the Big 12, right? And they were getting ready to move to the SEC, and we thought this is going to be the last time that Mizzou and Kansas played basketball against each other, right? And it was one of their last games, and that game was super close the whole time. The lead never uh, fluctuated past three points. So there's about a minute and a half left in this game, And Mizzou started to fall apart, which us Mizzou people are all used to, right? Mizzou started to fall apart, and and the lead got to seven, and there was like half, you know, like 30 seconds left in the game. And I was like, that's it. We're done. I don't even want to watch the ending because I do not want to see my team lose. So I went to bed, right? And I went to bed, and about 10 minutes later, Jamie walks into our bedroom, and she goes, you have no faith whatsoever, And I was like, what? She goes, they won. They pulled it out. I said, no way. No, they didn't. She goes, yes, they did. They totally pulled it out. And so I got out of bed and I ran to the TV and I switched to every news station to just see the highlights of the game at the end that I missed, right? And then it kind of slapped me across the face because I realized that I was more passionate about this silly game and this team than I was about Jesus, And I remember coming in that Sunday morning and standing before all the students, and some of you students that were here might might remember this, standing before the students and and saying, guys, I've got to confess something to you. I was more passionate about this Missouri basketball game than I am about Jesus, and my priorities are just not in the right spot. So let us talk about that a little bit. Where, when, when you hear the word idol. What do you think of? I think a majority of us think of a gold statue or some carved image. Our minds immediately go there. 
And we would probably say today that we don't worship idols because we worship Jesus, right? But the thing is, is we're not just talking about gold statues here. An idol really is any good gift from God that becomes something that we place in front of Jesus or before God. Something that we seek after more than God, like a team or a career or our children in their sports or education. It can even be politics and its many topics. See, none of these things are bad things with and of themselves but they become idols when they take our focus off of Christ and they put our focus on this thing. So this morning, let's look at one of the most read sections of Scripture when it comes to idol worship. And if you grew up in the church, you know this section as the fiery furnace, or if you grew up watching Veggie Tales, you know this section as Rack Shack and Benny, right? So let's look at these three young men and how they stayed faithful to God in a culture of idolatry. And then let's see, how can we apply this to ourselves today? So Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, let's read together. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth was 6 cubits. So this was an idol that was 90 feet tall and 6 feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then, verse 3, all these people, I'm not going to read them again, gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald, this is just the guy with the loudest voice, proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Verse 6. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So let's stop there for a second. Why did the king do this? Well, see, King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was becoming very large, and he wanted to maintain loyalty and commitment to himself. So what better way than to tell the people, I will kill you if you do not obey my commands? So his test was this, bow down to this image. Now, this image could have been of himself. It could have been of another god. Or like Rack, Shack, and Benny, it could have been a giant chocolate bunny. Now, we don't know the shape of the image, but that really doesn't matter. When the music played, if you didn't fall down and bow down and worship, you were to be thrown into the fiery furnace. So the people did as the king requested, and they all lived happily ever after, right? No. Verses 8 through 12, what we see is some other leaders came to the king 
And they said that there's three guys that are not obeying your commands. Look at verse 12. This is what they said. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship your golden images that you have set up. So what did the king do? Look at verse 13 through 15. In furious rage, right? He commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, be brought to him. So they brought them before the king. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar then asked, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? So he had a little respect for them, right? That you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Look what happens here, right? Look what happens here now. Now, if, if you're ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Did you see what he did? Nebuchadnezzar gave them a second chance. He gave them a second chance. He had respect for these young men. And then he asked this question, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, this really isn't so much a question as it is a statement that Nebuchadnezzar is making. What he's really saying is, is this, I am in control here. There is no one more powerful than me. No one can save you from my power, my authority over my kingdom and my wrath. Now we get into the part that we all love, right? Verse 16 through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer to answer and said to the king oh nebuchadnezzar so they were respectful right we have no need to answer you in this matter if this be so our god whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hands o king but if not verse 18 be it known to you o king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Man, these guys are faithful, right? They completely trust God. Who can save you, asked the king. Who can save you? And their response was, our God can save us. Completely save us from this fiery, uh, fiery furnace. And this is the best part and the part that we all get fired up about is when they say, but if not, right? And we go, yes, I want to be that Christian that says, but if not, I completely still trust in God. If God doesn't save us, we'll never bow down, no matter what. Even if God lets us die, we will never bow down to a golden image. And we all go, yeah, let them have it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So verse 19 and 23 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men... They were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. 
Now, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's amazing. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace, and they died, and everyone else lived happily ever after. No, that's not right. Verse 24 through 27. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered, and they said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, come out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects, verse 27, yeah, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. All right, those of you who, who smoked meat in our meat competition, y'all stank, right? You weren't even in the fire. You were just among it, like around it, right? And so at the end of this story, we all cheer because it's a story that we love. God gave these faithful men. He saved them from the fire. He even sent a fourth person to be in the furnace. Now, who was that person? We, we really don't know. Some say God, some say Jesus, some say an angel, but whoever it really was doesn't really change the meaning that God not only saved them from the fire, but he didn't even let their clothing smell like smoke. So what happens next? Verse 28 through 30, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants. Listen to what he says about them. Who trusted in him, meaning God, and set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies rather than to serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, Nebuchadnezzar says, I make a decree any people, nations, or language that speak anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. Man, he was extreme. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What an amazing story of faith. Amazing story of those young teenagers who trusted in God. Now, there's so many great applications that we can pull from this text this morning to take home from us. And it, if we think that the world we live in is, is not like the world that we live, like, like they lived in, let's think a little bit differently, right? It's, it's in many ways much the same. Now, I know it's very unlikely that we'll ever be made to bow down to a golden image and thrown into a fiery furnace if we don't. 
But our world today that we live in also lives contrary to God. In the USA, we see people trying to create their own kingdoms and keep their names great and their parties in control. And they will do whatever it takes at whatever cost to make it happen. And like I said at the beginning, every single one of us has idols that demand our worship. And we can all acknowledge that we live in a culture today that daily challenges us in our walks with Christ, that challenges our devotion to Jesus. So what can we do? What can we do with our walks with Christ when we live in a culture of idolatry, the same as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, there's three things that we can pull from this text to help us in our walk with Christ, to help us stand in a culture of idolatry. And the first thing that we need is biblical conviction. Right? We see in this section of Daniel that these three young men had a strong understanding of what God had called them to do in his word. They served a God who they knew. Their convictions came from what they were taught about their God and his word. They weren't just brought up through feelings right, and thoughts about who God was. Their convictions kept them from bowing down. And as followers of Jesus, we must have biblical convictions as well. So where do these come from? Where do we build biblical conviction? It's a Sunday school answer, right? The Bible. The Bible, God's word. So we must daily be in the presence of God through his word. We must be reading it and hearing it and memorizing it and applying it to our life. So that in the life or death situation, in that life or death moment like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can stand on our convictions. We can do the same. It is possible. Let me ask you this. How do you know the convictions of the people around you? How do you know what convictions people hold? I'll tell you the easiest way is listen to what comes out of their mouth, right? Listen to what comes out of their mouth. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 12, 34 says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the what? The mouth speaks. So where our treasure is, then our mouth speaks about it. So if the word of God is not filling our hearts, then something else is. And when you spend your time filling your life with videos and blogs and scrolling social media and following cultural or or political influencers, you are being formed by them. And then that's how we end up bowing down to idols because we just look at the rest of the world that we're following and we say, well, they're all doing it. Why can't I? And then every good parent in the room goes, well, if Johnny jumps off the cliff, do you do it also? So how do you find out what idols are in your life? Well, take an inventory of your time. Look at your prayer life. What are you praying for? 
are you praying? Take an inventory of the time that you spend with God versus other things. Why are you working where you are? Why are you living where you live? This is one thing that, that I wrestle with a lot, and I'm, and I'm pretty sure the rest of us do as well. Um, when vacation is coming and it's that time to wake up and make that 6 o'clock flight, right, that 3 o'clock wake-up call is not very hard because it's vacation, right? Or when I know my son has a baseball game at 8 o'clock in the morning, waking up at 6 o'clock to drive the hour to get him there an hour before the game is not very difficult. But sometimes it's hard to roll out of bed on Sunday morning because I've worked a lot on Saturday afternoon, right? Sometimes those things are difficult. It's hard. It's really exciting when my kid gets asked to be a part of a travel team, but it's really hard to stand in front of that coach and say, Coach, um, we go to church on Sunday morning. And so, therefore, he might miss some of those games. But if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we need biblical conviction. Or we will look like everyone else, bowing down to the same thing when we hear the music play. The second thing we need is God-centered confidence. And these all kind of build on each other. You can't have confidence in God if you don't have convictions. So, Remember what uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said about King Nebuchadnezzar, or said to King Nebuchadnezzar. He said, our God is able to save us from the fiery furnace. That is God-centered confidence. And we can have that also. We can know that God will come through in the end no matter what. See, they didn't know that they were not going to be killed that day. They didn't have the end of the story. They just knew, I've got to stand in my convictions. I've got to have confidence in my God. And they did because they had a faith that was focused on an eternal God, trusting that whatever the outcome, God is in control. God has a greater plan, and I can trust it. So God-centered confidence then can read Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, and rejoice and be glad. Right? Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. So if you have persecution upon you, you can rejoice and be glad because you trust in God. You have confidence in God. In order to not bow our hearts to idols, we must find our confidence in God and in God alone not in the good things that God has blessed us with. See, God has given us so many good things. And he gave us those things so that we can show the world that we are a person that, who can enjoy blessing, but still be totally obsessed with God and worship him wholly, finding confidence in him. And then when the hard times hit and when life gets difficult, we can show the world around us that God is still great. And knowing him is worth it and brings peace and joy in everything that we do, even when life is hard. So let me just throw this out there, because I don't know if everybody knows this or not, but we're in a kind of a political race right now. Anybody know that? Anybody get anything in their mail? I got seven things yesterday, right? 
I'm voting for all of them, right? I'm just, no. Um, but no, if, if our culture, basically what we're seeing, demands political fanatics. Our culture demands political fanatics, undying loyalty to a person or a party. Does this sound familiar? It sounds like King Nebuchadnezzar. See, but politics make a terrible God. Now, don't get me wrong. Being involved in our political system is one way that we can love our neighbor and love our God. But when we put our confidence in our political someone and are willing to split the church or divide believers over it, well, to use the Apostle Peter's language, we're no longer living as aliens and strangers to this world. No, we're acting just like this world because we're placing our confidence in something of this world and not God. So where is your confidence? Where is your hope? Your actions will speak volumes. And your words will speak volumes about where your confidence is. And then when you hear the music play, it will be put to the test. So we must have God-centered confidence. And then finally, we need radical commitment. See, it was pretty radical for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to say, but if not... Right, right to the face of King Nebuchadnezzar. But if not, God, if God doesn't save us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These guys were willing to give up everything. So is Jesus worth giving up everything for? I hope that we're all nodding yes. But do you believe it? To have radical commitment is to be radically dependent on God's power. We trust in him completely. He is our all in all. He is all I need. Wouldn't you say that that was kind of the message of these teenagers? God is all I need. But if God doesn't save us, I'm still not going to bow down. That is radical. So when was the last time that you were radically dependent on God? Here's what I know. When, if you were a follower of Christ when you were a teenager, uh, you tend to be more radical. Is that right? Right? I was pretty radical as a 19-year-old, 18-year-old, 20-year-old uh, when I followed Christ, trusting God in everything. But we were teenagers, right? We didn't have much to lose. We were fearless. But I've sat in many a Sunday school classes where I hear stories of a radical life lived that was 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Do you believe that God still calls adults to live radically? I do. to trust him completely. I, I do. A radical commitment stands at the throne of a leader and proclaims a commitment to God no matter what. A radical commitment keeps biblical convictions about sexuality and sexual identity. 
while still speaking with grace the gospel and a hope that cannot be found in the things of this world. But here's the other thing. I think a radical commitment is also walking across the street and talking to your neighbor about Christ. Something that maybe God's been telling you to do for years. Or even possibly apologizing for the stubbornness that you've held on to that issue that has caused you not to go talk to that neighbor for years. Radical commitment to God serves the next generation, teaching them the truth, giving up your Sunday mornings and your Sunday evenings. Somebody who's just willing to sit with kids younger than you and be salt and light in a world of darkness and decay. See, to close up with this, the world around us doesn't see us, or really the church in general, standing against anything. They just see us bowing down to the same golden images that we are bowing down to or that they are bowing down to. See, because we play and we practice and we talk about our culture like everyone else. Not only, then, not only that, but we yell at the umpires and complain about the coaching like everyone else. See, the problem is, is we talk more about our political stance and gun control and abortion and the borders, and we mock our classmates and complain about our neighbors and our teachers more than we talk about Jesus or trust in him completely. So then we look like everyone else when we hear the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music. So, We can't continue to live like the world and expect a different outcome, right? We must live like Christ, whom we are called to imitate as followers of Christ. We must love God and love our neighbors. We must make Christ a priority in our homes. Let's do this. We must make Christ a priority in our own heart, in our own life. Then, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can impact everyone around us. We can impact our schools. We can impact our neighborhoods. We can impact our communities. We can impact our government. But it's going to take a biblical conviction, God-centered confidence, and a radical commitment to him and to him alone. So the challenge for us this morning, is to live in such a way that we are totally dependent on and desperate for the power that only God can provide. Let's pray.